Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 208. I hope everyone had a true Zman Cherusenu, time of our emancipation, our freedom. As we've discussed, taken directly from Chassidus, the Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is on many levels. It's a multi-level experience, not just leaving Mitzrayim as in the land of Egypt, Mitzrayim from the word Mitzrayim v'gvulim. Limits, constraints, inhibitions, anything that traps us. So I hope this Pesach has brought in definitely a new energy of enabling us to be able to free ourselves from our impediments and our blocks. Did so for you in this Dorim, or if you're in Yisrael in the one Seder, and throughout the seven, eight days of Pesach. And today we stand in Isru Chag. Isru Chag literally means Isru Chag, is that it's bound to the holiday, the day that follows the holiday, Yisru Chag Bavusim, is uh, bound to the holiday Bavusim, at Karnes HaMezbeach. This is taken from a posuk that, that in, in the Tanakh, the posuk is, tough, um, let me give you the exact posuk, where is it here? Yes. Tehillim, Kufiut Ches Chov Zayin, it's actually next year's capital of the Rebbe's, the chapter 118. The Rebbe spoke about it not many times, but one place that I'm referring to that I'm looking at here is in the Sikh of the second day of Shavuos, Tov Shem Vov. The Rebbe edited parts of that talk, and uh, in uh, section Sif Yud, <coughs> the 10th Sif part of that Sikh, the Rebbe brings this and explains what means Ravusim um, is a very powerful bond. Kesher Chazok, I'm literally citing from this place. And that Karnasim is Be'er, the Rebbe cites from Kabbalah and from different places that explains what is the meaning Isru Chag, to bind the Chag, Ravusim, like in, with strong cords or strong um, um, uh, ropes. And Ad Karnasim is Be'er, and the Rebbe explains Keren from the word Etzem that touches the etzim of the holiday. So Yisru Chag, even though we are now not in a, we're in a weekday, it's no longer the holiday itself, but in a sense the aura and the energy of the holiday continues to prevail and affect us all. And as such, using this opportunity, as the Rebbe explains in that sicha, uh, the different halachic elements that you're not supposed to fast on a day after a holiday, but what it comes down to is that Whatever the holiday represents, the Isra Chag of that holiday continues the connection, you can say the transition from the experience of the holiday into our weekday experiences. You find throughout Yiddishkeit, you always find there's an Erev Shabbos, there's Maila Shabbat, there's Bosel Shabbat. We always have a preparation as we, as we enter into a special space or a special time. And we also have, so to speak, a landing. Like there's a takeoff, there's a landing, it doesn't just end. It continues, the aura continues for a day, sometimes there are three days, sometimes seven days, tashlumin. The point being that it isn't just a technicality, the holiday. The holiday contains power, and that power continues to infuse us and affect us. So Yisra Chag is that type of mamutsu or interface, which we find throughout, as I said, throughout Jewish traditions, you find it all the time. The ideas of preparing for something or, so to speak, internalizing it afterwards. And then you also find the concept of, of Mamutza throughout Kabbalah and Chassidus, the idea of an interface, which really is the key to the fusion 
and, through, and, and uh, integration of any two experiences, if you want to really experience them in the fullest sense without compromising one or the other, you always need an interface. And technology, you see the same thing. The interfaces are the forces that allow the right balance to be maintained, that allows f- energy to flow, whether it's into an appliance or any other form of uh, uh, energy flow, that you always need this interface. So Israchag, you can see, is an interface between, in our case, we're talking about Israchag Pesach, that the experience of transcendence of Pesach and Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, leaving all types of constraints, freeing us, as the Maral says, that we became a free nation, a free human being. Freedom is not just that you have no shackles. Freedom means you're free within, that you control your destiny, that no one else can impose their will or impose their interests upon us is a tremendous power because if you can think about it psychologically, one would say, one second, I'm influenced by my parents, by my schooling, by my education, by my society, by media. All these things put pressure on me that, so to speak, take away the choice from me to be able to really um, fly or actualize my, my potential. But when you know then you're here that we become a truly free person means that there's no one that controls your destiny. And that you really have the ability to reach the greatest heights, which is the power that Yitzhiz Mitzrayim gives us. It's a whole different story. We're fundamentally Bnei Cheir. Now, obviously, God determines the ultimate destiny of a person. But we have a say in the matter. And we can actually, through our Veda and through our efforts and through our initiatives, make a tremendous difference. We're not a victim of circumstances. That's the key. Yitzhiz Mitzrayim infused that into the Jewish people, into the human race, in a way that forever we are changed till this very day. Yisrochag says, okay, during the holiday, one could argue, okay, during the holiday, it's a holiday experience. We are somewhat, we don't go to work. We're somewhat disconnected from the general routines of our social lives. We, we are spent our times with our families in the holiday spirit. But you say the day next day already becomes okay. We're going back into the so-called reality, into the mundane world. Comes Yisrochag and says, no. We're still bound to that energy, and that energy can infuse us even after the seven, eight days of Pesach, which of course applies to our lives in every possible way. Each of us have our own Mitzrayim. We each have our own constraints, our limits, our fears, our um, concerns, the things that are phobias, our neurosis, you name it, you can fill in the blanks. And we're given this power to be able to infuse Pesach throughout the entire year. As the Alta Rebbe did not put Chasal Sidr Pesach, to sing it at the end of the Seder, that, that, that this concludes the Seder Pesach, because Pesach went Nimshech Alamo Tomid. Pesach continues perpetually, which means also even after the Seder and even after Pesach. Obviously, the halachic boundaries and, the, and the, the actual experience itself is on Pesach itself, but nothing is only a temporary experience. Everything spills over and continues to infuse our lives, but we need to make those containers. So this is the perfect transition we're now literally coming within 24 hours from Pesach, and that it should be a liberating year personally and collectively to each one of us in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our communal lives, and in our global lives. Also in Parnosa, meaning in our children, in our Mazena, which is our livelihood, and our health and life, that it should all be in the most expansive possible way as Pesach the name implies Passover, transcendence, and Nizman Chayr Hussein, the freedom, and Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, leaving all forms of limitations. So, 
that is a few words about Isra Chag, the day we are in right now. Um, I will talk also about being that this coming, the end of this week is 28th of Nisan. Chavches Nisan is an anniversary that we all remember that 27 years ago in Tavshin Nun Aleph, the Rebbe said that, the, that, uh, that heartfelt, heart-wrenching talk that he gave about what we can do to bring the Gula. The Rebbe said, I did everything and now do everything you can. And specifically stated that if 10 Jews would yell and scream with a truth, with a nemes, would you scream with a nemes and mean it with that truth, with a nemes sincerely. Ad Mosai, meaning how much more can we deal with this? Ad Mosai, till when do we have to continue to endure the Golas and finally come to, and we should finally have the Gula that it would actually happen? And the real Golas is a Golas Pnimi, meaning it's internal. Today we do not, we are not limited by any forces outside of us. We're not. Thank God, we're not under the control of, of Nazism and of communists or others that, that literally enslaved or the Egyptians or all the others throughout history. Today, we are, we are only, our only limitation is our own internal will, the Mitzrayim within, not the Mitzrayim without. And at the end of that sikha, that 27 years ago this week, the Rebbe said that he ratzen, should be God's will, that there'll be one, two, or three of you that will put your heads together. Discuss, consult, advise, what to do and how to do, and it should all go, of course, with great success. So we're now 27 years later, and we cannot forget that talk, because that, that mission that we were charged with continues to be with us until we actually bring the Gu'ullah does not mean we can do things that are beyond our power. That's not what the Rebbe would ask anyone to do. The Torah does not, we're never asked to do something beyond our strength, beyond our capacity. So for us to do something, it means we have the ability to do so. We cannot create resurrection. We cannot build the Beis Amigdash without God's specific instruction. And there are many things we cannot do. What we could do is do everything possible to prepare ourselves and everyone we come in contact with and everyone in the world to the Gula. There's two key things to this, which we've talked about many times. I'll refer you, cross-reference you, to episodes 64 and 159, where I discussed it, and uh, many other talks that I've delivered and spoken and written about this, that it comes down to two things. One is consciousness. Mashiach is a consciousness thing. It's a change of consciousness. Instead of materialism being an end in itself, instead of the mundane world and our own personal gain and pleasures and interests become an, being an end in itself. <coughs> Excuse me. That will only be a means. The entire business, the entire preoccupation of the world will be to know God. This doesn't mean we will not have a life in the material world. We'll be living in this world, but the focus will be, the means will be toward the end of the Dasas Hashem Bavad. And everything we will see, we will see divine. The divine within the, the hand inside the glove. And the words of Yeshai that we said yesterday in the Haftarah of Achashah Pesach, there will no longer be evil and no more destruction. Why? Because the world will be filled with divine knowledge. Like the waters cover the sea. Again, the word Deyas Hashem. Deus Hashem means that you see the divine and you see and you're intimately connected to the divine knowledge, which is an intimate type of knowledge in everything that exists. 
It's like seeing the engineer's hand within the machine that he created, which is life. Putting the Aleph of Hashem, Aluf Shalelam, of Achod, Hashem Achod, into Goyla. Goyla is Golis, is exile, which means displacement when all this is concealed, that Aleph. Goula, you just add the Aleph. As the Rebbe explained in the Sikh of Shabbos Pashas, Achrei Meish Kedeshim, Tovshinun Aleph that no one should be afraid because it's not like life will be taken away from us. It's only going to add. Gaila will have everything we have today, but we will see the Aleph, we'll see the purpose, we'll see the divine, we'll see the unity within it all. So it's a consciousness thing to be able to envision through learning Chassidus, through learning Teda, to look at everything and realize it's really just a fingertip or a, or a, uh, or a piece of art that God placed here, which is imbued with divine energy, and it's a consciousness to be aware, to think about it, to constantly see how I can use every part of this world, everything, as it says in that last chapter of the Pirkei which you also begin to read and learn in these weeks, the Shabbosim between Pesach and Shavuos, and some continue throughout the summer. So in the last chapter, everything created, the so it's not just you take something, you buy something, you eat something, you travel somewhere. Everything you recognize, the the divine glory, the divine presence, and the divine within it. What does divine mean? This you need to learn chassidus. As the Rebbe says, which in the broad sense of the word means living, learning about what Gula Mashiach means, which means what will happen then, what kind of life it will be, what is the meaning of Gula Mashiach, the details and when you learn about it, you become more aware and you become more cognizant and more familiar with what it is. When you don't learn about something, you don't know about it, you don't know how to, with what, to, with what to digest it. So the more we learn, the more we relate to it, the more we can understand and recognize its meaning and significance in our lives. And that alone creates familiarity. Familiarity creates relationship. And then act on it to live a life as best as possible in that direction. Your house is not just a house. The table is not just a table. It's a house where you bring in divine light, to bring in divine wisdom through kindness and virtue. And increasing acts of goodness and kindness, as the Rebbe told CNN in that period of time back then in the 1990, what is the message? Increasing goods of kind, goodness and kindness. What is goodness and kindness? Tzedek and Yeshir is that when we bring goodness and kindness, we're bringing in the divine energy into a world that can be very selfish. We are basically revealing messianic energy. And when it all accumulates over the thousands of years and the millions and billions of good deeds, it erupts in the, in the messianic world, which we are all waiting for. So Chav Ches Nissen is the time to think about these words. It's worthwhile listening or reading again what the Rebbe said 27 years ago on that day. And that, let's go from that into Pasha Shmini, which is the Pasha of this week. Shmini is always connected to Geula because the number eight, as the Rajbos says, cited in Chassidus in many places, that seven represents the Shiva Simea Hekef, the cycle of time. Everything has a cycle. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbos. And then you begin counting again from one, as it's explained in the Kutateda and other places in Chassidus. Why from one? Why don't we go 7, 14, 21, 28, and so on? Because time has a cycle. There's a structure. It's the cycle of the seven midas, the, the seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuos that we're also now finished the first week. 
and beginning the second, which is why we, we're counting the Shavu Shavuos, the seven weeks, seven times seven, 49 days. Seven Shemitah, the number seven is sabbatical. Seven is the cycle of time. In the language of Chesed, Zoyer Ampin Zo, from Chesed through Zoyer and Mazan Malchus, Chesed through Malchus, seven days, seven energies. What's Shmini? Vayibayema Shmini. Shmini always represents something that goes Lamaila Shemeres Ahekev, as the Rajba says. It protects the cycle, which means it's a force that transcends the cycle and, in a sense, keeps it intact. Think of it like a structure, so you have seven pillars, but you need one hovering energy that keeps it intact in, in and keeps it balanced. And so Shmini represents transcendence. So whenever you talk about Geula, you talk about seven is in our time. Seven, the candelabra of seven, the, the, the kinner of seven chords, the kinner is the harp. And when Mashiach comes, there'll be Shmena. There'll be eight chords and eight, like by Hanukkah, eight um, eight, eight, eight um, branches until it reaches even ten. So eight always represents the level that goes beyond the structure. Structure can be a very aligned structure to the purpose of existence, but you want Geula, Aleph, and the Geula, you introduce the number eight. The number eight brings the transcendence into the imminence, so we don't just have a machine that's aligned with its engineer's plans, but you also have a machine that represents the engineer himself, which is transcendent force, goes beyond the structure. And that is why on the eighth day, on the eighth day of when the, from the, when the temple was established, that's when the temple began to be served, they began to serve, all the things the Pasuk talks about, how the Shekhinah began to reside and rest in this place. So eight represents actually bringing the Shekhinah into the world, which of course we know was the seventh generation, Moshe Rabbeinu did it as the seventh generation from Avram Avinu, seventh, but then he brought the Gilead Shechina, which is an eighth dimension, and the same thing in our generation, we were told the seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe, Chassidus Chabad, which will be lead into the eighth of Geula, the, the Shmini of the transcendent level that permeates and elevates and um, transforms the cycle of existence, the cycle of the structure. What is this in Aveda and Chassidus applied, applying it in our personal life? Is we too have Bechol Avavcha, Bechol Nafshecha, Bechol Moedecha, Vahavta Sashem Alekecha. There's a kalov and a devotion and a connection to the divine that is with all your heart and with all your, um, with Bechol Avavcha, Nafshecha, with all your soul. And then you have Bechol Moedecha, with all your all. Moedecha, more than the regular. So we have an Aveda, the service we do, which is the structure of seven. That is our routines, that we align our routines to something greater, to what, the, what God wants of us. So that's when a person looks at their lives, the seven days of the week, including Shabbos, and aligns it to what they should be doing instead of being distracted or seduced or some way, um, some way diluted, some way di- somewhat veering off the course of our missions. But then comes number eight, when we go beyond our natural uh, abilities. We push a little harder to getting out of the comfort zone, like in Tanya chapter 15, the 101 over the 100 that is repeated 100 times, something that can be a habit or a routine, a pattern. The 101 is out of your comfort zone. That was the way it was in the times of the Talmud. In our case, whatever it is that you push beyond your seven, that's your eight. And that in turn draws down 
from the higher levels also you get an energy from above that's more than just commensurate to your faculties and your capacities and abilities, but actually gives you something from a greater and higher place. So all comes together as we go from Pesach, which of course has seven days is the Yisrael, but in Chutzlar it's, it's eight days. It's called Achen Pesach, the eighth day of Pesach. Eight again representing, like when it comes to Bris Mila, also the eighth day. As the Alter Rebbe explains in the Maimon Lam Natseich, Allah Shminis, Allah Shminis. On the eighth, in the Teda, in the chapters that we're going to be reading in the coming weeks. It's a slow, they began reading it already. Sazria, where he says a whole powerful Maimon about the number eight as, which, and, its, and its strength beyond seven. But of course, eight cannot exist without seven. You can't get to eight if you don't count seven. So the eight comes through the seven, but then you go beyond. And that beyond is the power that brings a whole new dimension into our lives. Which in practical terms simply means many people feel they're in a rut. They can't get out of things. They can't get out of their own way. They can't get out of their own routines. Sometimes the secret is to do something that you've never done before. Something unique. Something out of your comfort zone. And that in turn pulls you out. That's what happens when a person is in a rut. If you keep just going with the same energy, you just keep going in circles. If you need, you need an extra amount of, of, uh, of uh, vigorous power to pull yourself out of it. The eighth, which in turn brings the eighth from a higher level and above. Okay. I want to just take this opportunity to, of course, invite you to write to us all your questions completely anonymous at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, where you have a form where you can submit your question. If you want a response that is to your email, either due to something specific that you want us to know, you have to add your email address in that box because we cannot trace your, um, your identity and your address to respond to you. And it's also a place where you can find the other valuable resources and assets connected to my life, including um, the previous episodes and they are and their, um, crawl, crawl, uh, the previous archives that they all can be found in that same location. With that, I should mention that besides 28th of Nisan, we also spoke about Shmini in episodes 109. And regarding 28th of Nisan, I neglected to mention 64, 159, 162, and Shmini in 109. Um, so now being that, and, and this is also an opportunity to tell you and always share the fact is that this program is completely community-sponsored, meaning we depend on rely on your donations of any amounts that you feel comfortable. You can do that easily by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Please be generous as we come from Pesach to help us continue and uh, invest our resources and bring more resources into preparing these programs and broadcasting them and making them available, which uh, I'm sure and I know has helped many people. So we are partners and we depend on your help in this regard. Um, finally, as far as announcements go, I will also begin this week by reviewing the actual content of the winning essays, which we just announced right before Pesach, the winning essays for the My Life Chassidus, the fourth My Life annual Chassidus Applied essay, Chassidus Applied essay Contest. And we'll be doing that close to the end of the program, and we're going down the list of reading different essays in the list of, and as they were marked by our distinguished judges, Fascinating essays, one after the next, and you can see them as well at the, in the, in the My Life Chassidus Supply page. As I said, MeaningfulLife.com, My Life, slash My Life. Okay, 
Let us go now to a question which just came right after Pesach. We received this question, I believe, Chalamed, or maybe, yeah, right, Chalamed. What lesson can I derive from a negative Seder experience? Rabbi Jacobson, most years I get sick from the Seder with a bout of stomach sickness. I'll spare you the details. This year was the worst yet. I was violently ill, and I was stuck in bed for about 36 hours after the Seder. Here in Eretz Yisrael, only one. And I missed all the davening and laning, which is the reading of the Torah. Plus, I am the Balkorah. I'm not laughing at your situation, I'm just, the plot thickens. You're the Balkari, the reader of the Torah. So I left the congregation in the lurch. My feeling is that the wine, matzah, and horseradish is like witch's brew for my stomach. I always end up with the unhappy feeling that the one meal every year with so much meaning to the very foods we eat is the one meal that makes me the most ill. What hope or lesson can I take from this unhappy phenomenon? Okay, well, as you know, I uh, try to read all questions that are relevant to us, even questions that sometimes some people may feel is uh, not really relates to them. But it's a question, the first time I've ever been asked such a question, I thought appropriate to read it. And we have to deal with every situation. I just hope that no, not many people had a similar experience, and no one except this person. But let's address it. I'm not going to get into the medical issues or any of the things that need to be done and check out why you may be allergic or having such reactions to the Pesach Seder, but maybe something has to be looked at. In addition, you know, the Pesach Seder is, not, is meant to be a freeing experience. If something a person is allergic to or someone, someone thinks is not life-threatening necessarily, but unhealthy for someone for whatever reason, you could pace yourself. There are many ways to go about this. One doesn't have to gorge themselves on Pesach, Matzah, Moder, and so on. Pesach, I'm saying from the Lush, meaning matzah, mother, the wine, and everything else that we do. And it can be done with moderation. That's more important, the health of a person being able to experience the Seder than having such a negative experience. But that's on a very basic level. You don't need me to tell you that. Maybe you do, so I'm saying it. But in case, but, but I, don't, I would believe this is common sense that everybody can figure out. On a deeper level, this is a back, goes to the question, a question that is a universal question in all situations. What happens, you expect all kinds of great, you look forward to some special experience, whether it's Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, or in this case, Pesach, and then whatever reason, you fall sick, God forbid. Or, like in this case, the Seder didn't, was not uh, good to your, to your body. So what do we, how do we address negative experiences? So the Chesidus-applied approach is very straightforward, taken from Chesidus. Even though things sometimes are negative on the outer surface, everything is a lesson in life. And everything can teach us about ourselves and we can learn to grow. Just like Mitzrayim itself. Mitzrayim is not a pleasant experience. Trust me, their stomachs were turning and churning and uh, during those years when they were oppressed, our ancestors. And yet they made the most out of it and they grew through it. What does the Pasuk say? As they were oppressed in direct proportion to that, they blossomed, they flourished, they thrived. So the fact that we have negative experiences, on the contrary, are meant to bring out deeper strengths. The fact that you have anguish over it. And again, I wish you should only have pleasant experiences. And everyone should. But once you have anguish, mean also from the word Mitzrayim, you call out from your constraints, from your narrow straits, from your dire straits, from a dire situation. And what happens? Anani ba God responds, from expansiveness. 
So every, every situation is an opportunity, a negative as well. Looking back at Pesach, you can say, okay, I had these aggravating moments with the reading of the Torah and all that you described. But you know what? Perhaps that's a challenge for me to become a greater person, for me to experience Yitzhak Mitzrayim in a deeper way, because I really experienced Mitzrayim in a deeper way. I spoke about this before when I said about the fact that sometimes you have to go to Shmini to get out of the Shiva if you're stuck in a place and that's, that's your routine. Sometimes you have to push harder. So when you have such an experience, maybe this is a good opportunity. On Yisrael Chag, when I mean, we were after Pesach already, so I can't give you advice what you should have done after the Seder. But now, this doesn't mean we don't have opportunities. I mean, next month we'll soon be learning that there's nothing lost. We learn from Pesach Sheni. People who could not keep Pesach properly in the first Pesach. It's exactly what you're saying. The Seder was a difficult. I can't say you didn't keep it at all. But it, was, it, was, it became difficult. So that's what Pesach Sheni comes, that the, that the people who were B'derech Recheka or Tmeya, they were not pure, or they were distant. And this means not just physically, but also spiritually. For whatever reason, they're not experiencing Tzitz Mitzrayim in the fullest sense of the word, we have an always another, other opportunities. But we don't have to wait for Pesach Sheni. You can already begin now experiencing if you so wish. So every challenge is a catalyst, can be a catalyst, and a springboard for greater growth. That's how what you take from this unhappy phenomenon, and we turn it into something happy and even greater because you learn to appreciate it more and not take it so for granted. Next question. How do we correct wrongs if we can't speak Lashon Hara? Perplexed about laws of Lashon Hara. Greetings, Rabbi Jacobson. I know you have spoken a number of times about Lashon Hara, and I have tried to review everything you have said in past episodes. But there's something I remain perplexed about. If nobody ever says anything bad about anything else, about anyone else, if nobody ever says anything bad about anyone else, can't people get away with all kinds of bad behavior? <clears throat> For example, you have talked on your podcast about how, how, how harmful it is when people, especially children, are abused. But how will such abuse stop if we don't speak about it? Generally, it will not stop until someone reports it. But to report is to speak Lashon Hara about someone. The same principle applies to less extreme situations, doesn't it? Please comment. Thank you. The same God that told us not to speak Lashon Hara also told us to protect lives. There's a din of a reida, for example. I don't like to mention it, but let's mention it's a din and teda. If you see someone running down the street, God forbid, with a knife, even if he hasn't stabbed anyone, or you see him as a danger, you have to report it, call the police, and there's no concept of Lashon Hara because a life is more important than speaking. You're not speaking bad about this person. You're reporting a fact of someone who's going to hurt or could hurt other people. So let's define Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara means... To sit and talk about negatively about another person is unacceptable, is, is, is prohibited. But if a person is doing something that is dangerous or is hurtful or could be hurtful, you have a bigger mitzvah is to protect lives and protect someone from being hurt by this person. So it's not about sitting and just gossiping about a person, a negative person. So, so that's the first thing. That when it comes to dealing with a situation where there's a wrong that needs to be corrected, you have to absolutely report it, absolutely talk about it. Does that mean you have to go around every door and every street and report, hey, this guy's a bad guy? If it's a danger, yes, absolutely. If someone's running down the street, everyone on the street needs to know. 
And you need to tell them beforehand and warn people. Do you have to later, once this person, let's say, is arrested, go around saying, by the way, this person, is this is what they did? If they're not a danger, they're not a danger. So this isn't about, Lashon Hara is about talking negatively about a person, period. Not about protecting lives or protecting a situation, even if it isn't life and death. Danger, danger. So that's the first thing that we need to know. Because simply not, we can't just talk Lashon Hara and the abstract in a vacuum. As far as other situations that are not, let's say, a radif, let's say a situation you find out that there's somebody doing something inappropriate that is not abusive, I'm not talking about sexual molestation, which is frankly like a radif because it causes tremendous damage to the people who are hurt. But something you see somebody, let's say, doing something that you know business-wise, they're doing in business something that's a little dubious. And let's, for argument's sake, they're not even affecting a person that you know. They're stealing from the government. So Lushan Hara would mean you go around and start talking about the person and saying, hey, look at this person, he's a launderer, he's a thief, he's a ganif. What, what's the benefit of saying that? If you feel, and this again should be checked with a rabbi and so on, that a situation where a person is doing something like that that may not be hurting people in me directly, so I can't call it a radif, nevertheless, that's not Lushan Hara if you report it in the right way, and this needs to be checked again halachically. So I'm pointing out that even people do negative things, or you know in a community, someone's doing something that is undermining others. And it's not a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of danger in, in any physical way. Lashon Nahara does not mean you cannot warn people and say this person is, is, is inappropriate to sit on our committee, or for other reasons this person is causing, bringing damage. We all have discretion of this nature. Lashon Nahara would be if you dwell and start talking negatively about the person and continuously that becomes your focus. The focus here is helping other people. Not talking badly about that person. The only reason you're talking badly is because the minimum has to be said. Sometimes the way to do it is without saying a name. Sometimes things can be done by not saying the name. Or saying the name only to the people that are necessary to know because they are the ones that have the ability to do something about it. You don't have to go and report it to everybody. Again, unless if it's a danger to everybody, of course you have to report it to everybody. Or to the police. And or. Both. But if it's not a danger to everybody and it's affecting people, sometimes in discreet ways behind the scenes, Lashon Hara is essentially the act of going to literally slander, I'm not saying not, even if it's true, not slander necessarily as false, but to just talk badly about ill about another person. If there's a benefit, there's ways to do it that are not talking ill, but simply the minimal necessary to get the, the issue corrected or remedied. So I hope that answers the question. If anybody wants to add anything to it or, or has any particular specific things that they're familiar with from the answers from the Rebbe, I'd be happy to hear from you. Okay. Let us now talk about, this is both a follow-up to previous episodes, Shlichus, the Rebbe Shlichus, Shlichus in general, is a topic, a recurrent topic that comes up again and again. So I'm going to do both follow-up and as well as talk about some new ideas this matter. Let us begin with the Shlichus in general. Let's just sum up. Over many, many different episodes, I've spoken, and the recent, most recently in episodes 204 and 206, about the Rebbe in charging the generation. From the first Maimon, Basiligani Tavshin Yeralov says, the Shlichus of this generation, the Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation, is to bring the Gula, to bring down the Shekhinah to this earth, through 
learning Torah, performing mitzvahs, and particularly spreading your chutz, or spreading the wellsprings of chassidus outward to the farthest corners of this world, to the farthest corners of our souls and our lives. As Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tev, that I will come and these wellsprings will spread outward. This is the general shlich. Specifically, it means each one of us in our way. Then we see, as the Rebbe began his leadership, began to actually send people to different cities, to different countries, and as we see today, thousands and thousands of different places all over the world. No corner of the world was off limits. People who dedicate 24-7 their lives. And this was the Rebbe's intention, that they should do this. So the question keeps cropping up, is there room to do other things? Can I go to work, live in Crown Heights, go in business, and also some tough part-time or whenever I can do it? Of course you can, you can do whatever you wish. But if you want to listen to the Rebbe's key and, and um, key mission that he gave us, we know what it is in many sikhs, not one, hundreds and hundreds of talks. This is not to be critical of anyone, this is just being realistic. Shlichus is very broad. Today, shlichus, people say, well, there's nowhere to go. There's millions of Jews. There are billions of non-Jews. There's the internet. There's all kinds of ways to reach people. If a person really wants to dedicate their lives to spreading Yiddishkeit and saying, my neshama came down here for what reason? To bring godliness to this world. To be a light and illumination to everyone. Not just to survive, not just to make money. But to do that, that's our primary mission. There's ways to do it. And those that really want, do it. And those that don't, I'm not here to criticize. This is not a bima platform for critique, for judgment. It's here to talk the truths of the Rebbe's words. Somebody wants to take those words and fit it into their comfort zone. That's your business. And, and, and I just suggest speak to an objective person to make sure you're not doing it with any bias or prejudice. So this always brings up controversies. People say, one second, not everybody has to be a shliach. We can do it different ways. Look, shlichus is a general statement of why your soul came down to this earth. That's a 24-7 thing. It didn't come down as a side job to once in a while tell a Jew or tell an Jew to do something nice, a mitzvah and so on. It means it's your core mission. Obviously, we eat and sleep and drink and do whatever it is to survive in this world as part of it, but that's, those are means. We're talking about what the mission, the, the, the main mission is. So to continue on some of the dialogue on this, from both, some, as I said, some new ideas and some past ideas, let me just read some critique or some comments. And this goes back again to episodes 204 and 206, where I spoke about these ideas uh, more at length. Shlichus. I watched and rewatched your video from the past Sunday Eve. Please let me share my experience and perspective. I respect your perspective. However, as the title of your show is Chassidus Applied, I believe it behooves us to truly be realistic and practical. There are great shluchim out there. Real shluchim doing the work of the Rebbe, not for COVID, not for money, etc. However, you have so-called... you have you, However, you have so-called official shluchim out there that are many accounts that on many accounts are simply not menshlich. Not only are they not merachik others, not only are they merachik others from Chabad, merachik means distancing others, alienating them, um, and Yiddishkeit, and I'm not exaggerating, they do everything to stop others from doing the Rebbe's shlichus. And why? Simply because they feel inadequate. They cannot tolerate not only others' success, but others' existence. I'm sure you and your listeners have heard many such horror stories of these so-called official shluchim and so-called het shluchim that are machriv elmas. This person's writing, they're destroying worlds. Please give credit to the real shluchim that don't get a piece of steak 
at the annual banquet, but are doing the Rebbe Shlichus not for status, not to hold a briefcase or ID card, and not to become corporate Chabad. There are many unsung heroes, and yes, many of them live in Crown Heights, like yourself and elsewhere, like your brother Yossi, but are not so-called official Shluchim. My apologies for being so blunt, and I hope that at least people will start realizing what a real Shlichus is about. Thank you, and a kosher and freilichen Pesach. I'm not going to comment much on what's written. I will just comment and say the following. The concept that shlichus is somewhat corporate or something limited to a few people, card-carrying members, I don't know whether that is an accurate representation of the Rebbe's intentions. Yes, there are shluchim who are, we'll call them official, I'm not sure what the word official means, but let's say officially sanctioned by Merkis, and yes, they are invited to the kinus. Others are not for whatever reason. I don't know how much of this is Rebbe-oriented. If a person decides, wherever they're living in the world, to totally dedicate 24-7 their lives to the Rebbe Zinyanim, to teaching Chassidus, to spreading Chassidus, to teaching people, Teira, to uh, propagating and perpetuating mitzvahs, good deeds, goodness and kindness, moment of silence, Sheva Mitzvah wherever it may be, and that's what they do 24-7. When I say 24-7, because a soldier is even a soldier when he's asleep. Would this be called a shliach of the Rebbe? I don't think there's anyone that would say, no, they're not called. They may not even know there's a banquet. They may not even know there's a kinnus shluchim. They know there's a Rebbe. However they know, they may have read about it, they may have learned about it, they may have never met the Rebbe, they may have read a book. I'm sure there are people like this. I know people like this. So let's broaden this for a moment and stop being so narrow about it. Is there such a thing as a more formal context where shluchim come together and the Rebbe is the one that obviously establishes the kinnus shluchim? There is. Should they invite this type of person I just described if they find out? I would. I'm not, but I'm not telling people what to do. Because there are such people, unsung heroes. And yes, in Crown Heights as well. But it requires a total dedication. See, when a shliach goes out to a city, 24-7, everyone, his children, his wife, his family, his, all, everybody is forever bound to their shlichas. They're not coming back. This is for life. In a good way. With simcha. That has to be recognized. Now, can a person do that without being formally announced as such? Of course they can. But we also have thousands that, have, that do have some kind of call, call it more formal, official. I don't, you know, words are words, semantics. I don't know what words are to be used. The Rebbe never used words official shleich, non-official shleich. They didn't identify shluchim as people who have that, those, those type of um, uh, that parameters that I just described. And in most cases, the people we know, they went, they came from New York, from Israel, wherever they went to their particular shlichas. And they are so-called in that capacity, Chabad of that place. But there's people who may be doing this, may not called Chabad. And are they Shluchim of the Rebbe? Of course, the Rebbe, said, the Rebbe said every person on this earth is a Shliach of his and a Shliach of Hashem to serve and do what is, has to be accomplished. So in that context, I think we're all on the same page. Some people may not like what I just said. But I, I, to, to me, it's the same idea. The Rebbe said clearly that everyone should be a Shliach. Now, if you can do it in a more formal way, maybe that makes it more, uh, more Chabad-oriented, you can say, or perhaps more committed. But that would be like someone running a shul, and the shul is not called a Chabad shul for whatever reason. But they run it in the Chabad spirit. Every case, case by case. Now, as far as the negativity about Shluchim, I'm not going to get into this. You know, there are people who are Shluchim who can, they have free will, and they can do things that are not always appropriate. And there are people who are not Shluchim, who do inappropriate things. That's human, that's human nature, human free will, 
And we're not, we're not here, this platform is not here to sit in judgment of who's doing what, and especially without knowing all the facts. I did read the letter because people have, have an entitled to state their opinion, but I would be happy to read letters that counter this or have different position. To just ignore wrong, wrongdoings is absolutely not the case, is not appropriate. There's a thing called Chil Hashem, Achil Labavich. And unfortunately, yes, Shluchim are not immune from that. They can't just say, well, I'm a Shlich, I can do whatever I like. There's no such thing. There's a Teda, there's Halacha, there's the Rebbe standards. And there's ultimately the, 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 there's ultimately the, what's the word I want to use? The PR, the attitude of people in the streets. That's also a, an issue, what people's attitude is. They see something negative. It doesn't matter whether you can find a loophole. He's supposed to be a Kiddush Hashem and a living example. But now we're digressing a bit. Okay, here's a person that keeps writing back and just does not like my approach, so which is fine with me. But I will read your letter, but I will not continue to read it because I'd like to be productive and not instead of just being a, uh, you know, redundant. But I will read it. Shlichus, shame on you. I was shocked and frankly turned over by your hostile response and, in my opinion, erroneous position. The Rebbe in the last years clearly turned everything on its head where he told many people that were not founders of Chabad houses but people that supported his goals that they are also his shluchim. Furthermore, I'm sure you're aware that the Rebbe announced that traditional shluchus is now over. Um, traditional, quote-unquote. And the main thrust today is to announce to the world that Mashiach is here and all we need to do is open our eyes. It is pretty clear that you can make this, you can make this message a life mission and still live in Crown Heights. Exclamation point, three exclamation points. Doing so trumps any shlich adir that wants to shy away from the Rebbe's overriding message. I understand that your thinking is well grounded on past years, but the Rebbe completely turned everything on its head on what he wants them to be doing. For you to obnoxiously respond to that commentator was irritating and frankly not even accurate. Your attitude that you really know what the Rebbe prefers, especially after the Rebbe made Mashiach his number one theme, frankly needs, needs some introspection and rethinking. Now, I, frankly, I don't have to comment on this. I think it speaks for itself. I don't feel the need to uh, defend myself here, to be very honest. But I will say, just in case there are some people who may be confused or maybe not be understand things, Shlichus of a Rebbe that never ends. From Tavshin Yudalov that ever gave the shlichus to bring the gula, I mentioned it before, Deir Ashvi. Everything from there was all to lead toward that destination. So I just want to make it very clear, even though I read it, it's not only wrong, it's simply someone obviously is ignorant to the whole concept. And I don't mean to be personal, I just want to be clear when it comes to halacha or clarity, you just have to state it as is. So the Rebbe never ended shlichus. You'd say certain shlichas may conclude, but then the shlichas is to bring the, and open our eyes and bring the gula be makabel premeshech zidkenu. But it's not an end of anything, God forbid. Shlichas starts with the Ebrishta sending a neshama down to this earth. If you read the sikhas from Mem Vov, Mem Zayin, Kinus Shluchim, that that shlichas actually begins with Eidein Sof. Lifniat Simpson is also Batur Shlich, as the Alter Rebbe says, look at the Tera. Anything out of Atzmus is already together Shlich. So this is the whole existence and beyond. The different forms it takes. Mashiach can be brought through Miftzayim. It can be brought through talking directly about Gaul. Nunbeis is, of course, the Sikha where this is discussed. But that's enough to say. And uh, obviously I'm not here to uh, respond to um, a tantrum or to words that are 
offensive. And let's move to the next question here. Shlichus. This is a question that actually came in a while ago, but since we're talking on the topic, I decided I'm going to discuss it from devil angles. Here we go. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Greeting and blessing. I want to talk to you today about the shluchim, shlichus, and anash. Just a few weeks ago, I was watching live via the internet the gala banquet of the Kinnus HaShluchim. Okay, so this was right after the banquet. What captured my attention was the stories the Mukurovim of the Shluchim were conveying of the love and care they got from the Shluchim and that they matter and make a difference. I just want to share a little bit of my story with you. I've been going for some time to one of these class click young shuls here in Crown Heights. For some reason, I have not been welcomed there. They weren't nasty to me. I just don't exist in their eyes. So I finally realized I'll, I'll never be expected there. I'm still looking for another show. Another experience I want to share with you, I'll go to 770 from time to time, either Shabbos or when there's a Fabring. There could be thousands of people there, but I still don't have anyone to talk to. And it's not because I don't know anybody. It's just I'm not choshev enough for them to socialize with me. And it's also, and it's also just a Brooklyn thing not to be friendly to other people. And especially if you see a newcomer in Shul, you should come over and say Shalom Aleichem. Just one more experience I want to share. I've been neighbors with some people for years and with some even for decades. However, they still don't say hello when they pass me by. They have a special way of walking. They just look straight ahead, making sure not to make any eye contact with me. Probably also just a Brooklyn thing. I think we need to have obviously Israel applied and Bitl applied. Back to the Shluchim. When I was watching the Kinnus, I couldn't help but realize that some of the shluchim that were, be, that were being praised for their friendliness were from Brooklyn. So I pondered, how could Brooklynites be so warm and friendly? But then it dawned on me that their shluchim and to be friendly to your balabatim is part of the Rebbe shlichus. So what I'm trying to get at is as follows. The ideal wish of every Labavitch is to go on shlichus. But something, sometimes, as Rocha Protis, destines otherwise. So I would like to say this to every member of Anash, whether they live in Crown Heights, Miami, or LA, they are shluchim because they are chassidim of the Rebbe. And a chassid is a shliach. Rabbi Jacobson, you can find the sources. So my point basically is I don't care why you don't go, why you didn't go on 24-7 shlichas. The fact is that since you ended up in, in this and this place, it's bashgacha pratis, and that's where your shlichas is meant to be. And in my opinion, the shlichas begins at home with your spouse and children to give them their spiritual and physical needs. And then... Reaching out to your close environment, maybe your neighbor needs a chavrusa or a good morning. How are you? I don't think shlichus necessarily means to reach out to a fellow Jew in Lubumbashi, Africa, or in Gwande, China. It may be with your next door neighbor as well. I will continue this letter next week because I see it's a pretty long letter and I don't want to read it all right now. I just want, again, the platform... As far as your first half of the statement is, you know, it's interesting to me you write that everybody's a shliach, you too. So even though someone may not, you may feel that someone's not welcoming you or someone is ignoring you or someone's not responding to you, that doesn't mean you shouldn't take initiative to respond to them or to do things. The most important thing with shlichus is that God and the Rebbe encourage us to take initiative, empower us to make, take a stand. You're not just a, a victim or a spectator or a um, uh, responder and reactive to other people's issues. I totally agree with the whole approach. But again, I go back to what I said earlier about shlichas, the different dimensions of it. So suffice it with that. 
As I said, this letter is a two-part letter. I'll continue reading more of it in the coming weeks. And I just wanted to make sure that I read every letter, even though there are letters I don't read, to be honest. Some of them are just simply either, either I don't understand at all, or they're written in ways that are too offensive, and so on. This letter is a borderline letter, so I read it, and I just want to make sure and encourage everyone to share what your thoughts are, and never hesitate to write. But I will use my discretion, in most cases read it, or sometimes edit it a bit and shorten it. Okay. Let me continue now with another letter regarding shlichus, since we're on it. Kinus. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for this platform and your commitment. I feel bad to rant, but please hear me out. I am running a successful bar mitzvah club, C-team program for 8th graders as well as high schoolers. I teach JLI for teens and give shiurim at a local Chabad, at local, at local Chabad, at a local Chabad institution. I also am a medical professional with multiple degrees and work in my field 30 hours a week. I've been working with teens and trying to be the Rebbe Shlich in revealing their neshamas and making Teir Mitzvahs more accessible and understandable to them and their families. My wife and I host families for Shabbosim and, and, and are involved on a personal level with their families over the years. However, this time of year always makes me double think what I'm doing. All the shluchim, quote unquote, are in New York and I am here, still running my programming and even taking responsibility for some of the main shluchim's programs. Because I have a job that supports my shlichus and don't have an official My Chabad account that verifies me being a shliach, quote unquote, I always come to the realization that I'm just helping out. No matter how hard I try, and how successful my programs, why can I not be part of the kinnus? What am I really doing? As much as I feel on shlichus, this kinnus brings me down to realize that I am not. I feel I am not the only one in this position, as many other working chassidim I know will not get involved with shluchim, because at the end of the day, it seems clear that not I or they, not I or they are not shluchim, just fools who shluchim looks to keep in their pockets. Confused and uninspired by the kinnus, please shine light on this matter. Thank you. Looking forward for your reply. I would suggest you should send this letter to Rabbi Kotlarski, who is the vice president and the vice chairman of Merkis, as well as to Rabbi Krinsky. Rabbi Kotlarski, I mentioned first because he is directs the Kinus Ashluchim. I feel for you and I understand your position. I am not the one that makes policies there. My point of view, if someone asked my opinion, I would find a way to honor and recognize everyone who does the Rebbe's work, whether they do it part time or full time or in the banners that are official or unofficial. At the same time, I understand the need to honor people. Like, you know, you go to a dinner, not everybody can be honored because there are people who, for whatever reason, have gone further out of their way. But I stand by what I said earlier. Hashem sent us all to this world. You're neshama by definition. By, your, by, by virtue of your birth is God saying that you are my shliach. No soul fell down here by accident. And by extension, when the Rebbe comes and says every Jew, every person is a shliach, to spread Yiddishkeit and all the details involved, refers to everyone. Can we honor if 7 billion people on this earth would fulfill that shlichus? Could we make a kinnish shlichus for 7 billion people? It would be a little difficult. Or for that matter, 14 million Jews, or half of that, or a quarter of that, or 10% of that? Yes, it would be difficult. So... You have to look at the Kinnus HaShluchim, it does what it does. Is that the, 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 the arbiter and the final decision maker in heaven who's a Shlich of Hashem? Of course not. I don't think anybody thinks that way. God decides that by sending you to this earth, you're a Shlich. So you have to recognize all the factors involved here. Some of the 
practical elements, some of the really comes down to space and definition elements of how we define this. I would try to broaden it if it was up to me. I would suggest that, yes, everyone who does the Rebbe's work should be honored. You have to find ways, so maybe we need to be creative about it. I'd rather go with that approach than becoming critical and saying, everyone or nobody. And I, again, I'm not getting into the officialness and not official. I don't even know what that word means from a Torah point of view. Who's a who, official neshama that comes down to earth? God, every neshama is an official shleich of Hashem. So what does official mean? Official by whose standards and whose terms? At the same time, I understand there are there's organizations, there's an organization that honors and recognizes and invites the Kinnish HaShluchim, the Rebbe made it clear, it's Shluchim. He didn't say everyone from Quran High should go, everyone, every Jew on earth. People who have chosen, and there are some parameters. But that, again, does not negate what I said before. And I don't think it's a problem to say both things, they're both true. And we just need to be balanced and figure out ways to be able to recognize and not don't feel dissuaded or in any way discouraged from continuing doing what you're doing. Maybe you should have a conversation with your shliach. Many shluchim surprisingly may surprise you and you see that they have a very good understanding. So there's always worthwhile trying, there's always worthwhile making an effort. At the end of the day, as I said, all of our souls were sent here to this world to fulfill a shlichus, and that's the key of all keys. Okay. Now, I left some time here. We're going to do the chassidus question, then I'm going to go over the essays. What is the correct definition of the word bitl used in chassidus? So recently came to my way a, a uh, edited, um, an edited letter, I believe it is, in English, which always is always very intriguing because words in Hebrew like bitl, if you don't translate it in English, you can say bitl. Bitl is bitl. So here's a translation. The way they wrote the translation of bitl was like this. Or I should say kabbalah sale. So it's not really actually the word bitl, but we'll get to bitl in a moment. This is yes, it's a sikha. The Rebbe speaks about hakel, and then he says the following. Uh, this is the way it was written, and here's how the Rebbe edited. Fear and love of Hashem are continuous mitzvahs during all hours of a Jew, and it, must be, and it is to be expressed in concrete terms of carrying out Hashem's commandments with Kabbalah sale. So Kabbalah sale, the translator, translated personal surrender. And the Rebbe corrected and wrote, left the SU of surrender and wrote submission, personal submission, as opposed to personal surrender, coupled with joy and gladness of heart. So this is a fascinating correction. Bittl, I've, I always have the challenge, how do you translate Bittl? We'll get back to Kabbalah sale in a moment. Bittl literally means annihilation. It can be obliteration, nullification. These are like literal translations. Bittl chometz is in the negative sense to be mavatl, to destroy it, to eliminate it, to annihilate it, to. But Bittl and we know is a lot more than that. Bittl is a very powerful positive force. It's not annihilation at all. It can be a form of humility, modesty, combination, suspending yourself, suspending yourself, to experience something greater than yourself. So though Kabbalah sale is not synonymous with bitl exactly, but Kabbalah sale literally means, Kabbalah means to receive oil, the yoke. So if you really translate, Kabbalah oil, Malchus Shamayim, receiving or accepting upon yourself, Kabbalah to accepting the yoke of heaven. Oil, Malchus Shamayim, of the, of the sovereignty of heaven. So it's accepting the authority. But how would we translate it? In, so, the, so they translate, translate, surrender. It's like surrendering to God. Submission, 
surrender has very negative implications. It's like in a war, you surrender to the enemy, that shows you lost. So I don't know if that's the only reason the Rebbe corrected it, but surrender also signifies a form of losing yourself. Like surrendering, you know, resignation, resignation or giving up. Submission is a very different, submission is a willingly, by your volition, you choose to submit yourself to the will of God. So that can, submission is an excellent translation of bitl as well. It's a form of submission. Bitl of your own rotsen. You, you, you set aside your will and submit to a higher will. So this was pointed out to me. Thank you for those that sent this to me. And it's definitely worth discussion, surrender, submission, and some of the other words. If anyone wants to comment on this, I really would love to hear your thoughts. Or if you have other sources of how this word is translated because it's a tremendous tool, and a tremendous tool, it's a fundamental concept in Chassidus, bitl. It's really the ability to be able to absorb and to connect to something greater than us. The bitl being, yesh, the yesh, there's the ayin be'emtza, the bitl of any one state in order to receive, shedding one layer of skin to receive, to grow another layer of skin. A common concept and a fundamental one in all forms of growth. I'm going to quickly sum up now, well, we'll use some time to sum up and uh, comment if possible, if need be, on the essays. So we had hundreds of essays that came in for this year's contest. In the last episode, last two weeks ago before Pesach, we announced the winners. We announced the actually top 30 um, essay winners without really going into what those essays. The first five have already been posted and my life at meaningfullife.com slash my life and you can see the essays of 2018. We will continue posting them week by week. If you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, we'll let you know when those are posted. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. And to, uh, you can also check, that, check it out every week and see on the site where you can where those essays are updated. I, want, I mentioned the YouTube channel, subscribing to My Life YouTube channel, you'll also get announcements about the weekly programs, which includes, of course, the essays. Week by week, week after week, I will go down the list from the top one, top winner, second place, third place, fourth place, fifth place, which we'll do today, which we'll do in this program, and then go to the sixth and seventh and eighth, and I will continue going, Please God, throughout the year until the next, as a Hashem, the next year's essay contest with Mashiach being here already, and I'm sure those essays will only be enriched by Mashiach's coming. So, let us now go. So these are the five top five. I'll start with the top one, which I will repeat again: the winner and age and more details, and just give you a recap of the essay. But you can read it in full glory again: meaningfullife.com/slash/my-life. The top one, number one winner was Label Ganevish, age 24, originating from Montreal, Canada, now working in Lamplight, as a teacher in Lamplight, as yeshiva in Brooklyn, New York. His essay was titled Reclaiming Vulnerability. And um, what he did was really take a concept which is something really filled with all kinds of confusion and misunderstandings of our own vulnerability, using the Hasidic concept, as I'll read in a moment, of a and a tater from the Balshemtiv, the Chassidah sites, in addressing the idea of being vulnerable with a mashpia, being vulnerable and being open up to be able to grow such a fundamental thing as having a mashpia, having a rav. So he begins by saying, upon perusing the current psychological and self help landscape, 
one will be currently encounter mentions of authenticity and vulnerability. One can say they've become buzzwords of late. This essay will attempt to define the oft-misunderstood term, examine its objective value through the lens of chassidus and psychology, understand its scarcity in our culture, and discuss possible solutions for its implementation. This is by no means an exhaustive essay, as so much can be discussed on the topic. The main Hasidic sources consulted will be the Lubavitcher Rebbe's interpretation of Ovis 1.6, make for yourself a mentor, acquire for yourself a friend, and the Baal Shem Tov's opinion on the intrinsic value of the Jew. I'm not going to read on, but what he did was, firstly, I want to say this for the very important for all those that have submitted essays and for those that want to do so in the future. Every essay is its own life. There's no right and wrong essays because they're personal. There's guidelines to make a level playing field where you have to have guidelines. And an essay could win not necessarily because it is the single best essay, but it's the single best essay that fulfilled all the guidelines that everyone is aware of. So there are some essays that may be better than others, but they're missing elements that have points. And to make it fair for everybody, we cannot just judge it by one or two elements. What this essay was so excellent in was the fact that, and I'm not minimizing the value of it, the fact that he did cross and follow all, check off, I should say, the checklist of all the requirements. And as I said many, many times, follow the guidelines. It's not that difficult. You can write an essay and then afterwards go back and ask people to help follow the guidelines. So all in all, Yes, the most two important points in every essay is taking an idea from Chassidus and applying it to a contemporary challenge or issue in life. That can be done by starting with the issue and moving to Chassidus and showing how Chassidus illuminates or directs us. Or it can start from Chassidus and applying it and giving guidelines, like here in this issue, suggestions of what can be done. Because that's the whole point. We're trying to apply Chassidus to our lives. I'm just explaining for some that need explanation the whole purpose of it. So this essay goes on and does exactly that. What he promises, he delivers, and does so in a way that the judges, taking all the accounts, got the highest, single highest mark. Mind you, these marks are very close. The second place is probably fraction points a little less than the first place, and it really comes down to the wire. As I said, sometimes it's difficult because essays are not necessarily on the same topic, and they all have their different strengths. Some have strengths in one area more than others. But these are the factors in this essay, very excellent essay about this topic, vulnerability, and then goes on, obviously, to analyze it and the importance of vulnerability and the Rebbe's approach to this based on the sources that I just mentioned. And a really great essay, and I, I believe reading it, it can actually help our education system, help anyone reading it to actually be better chassidim, better human beings, and just create healthier, um, a healthier culture in our approach to each other and our approach to ourselves, which of course is the greatest testimony of all. So both for parenting and education and every possible way, yes, I commend you for this essay, and we will now go to a um, next essay, the next number two, the second winner, second prize winner. This was a 10,000 prize first winner. The second prize winner was Hannah Hendel, age 18, Shlucha in Athens, Greece. And it was titled, Five Steps to Dealing with Perfectionism. It's in Hebrew, also posted on the site, and actually going through the concept of perfectionism. You know, many of us deal with trying to be perfect. And actually explaining, based on Chassidus, how we don't have to go all or nothing. The five different points she makes. Number two is that knowing what's a, what's a quality and the fact that we have qualities and we have virtues and we have assets and liabilities. 
not expecting things that are beyond real, real, being realistic, but commensurate to your place. Going out of your comfort zone is the key purpose of it all. And where should be your focus? And she did this in a wonderfully clear way and relates to a lot of us who deal with this issue called perfectionism. How far do you go before you move on? Sometimes you get stuck in this place. And of course compares it to other approaches and finally comes away with a table of suggestions of how one can be, um, be more productive and less focused on the need to be perfect. Essay number three was called And Choose Life. So this second essay was a $3,600 prize. Essay number three, which is a $1,000 prize, is And Choose Life by Sterni Tubal Ni Fogelman. Just got married just uh, literally after she wrote the essay. And by the time it was announced, she was married. Age 22, originating from Natick, Massachusetts, and now in Brooklyn, New York, teacher in Southern Connecticut Hebrew Academy. Sesse and Choose Life, I'll just read, it was in, in English this time. Um, introduction. Before anything else, though sometimes we learn it only after everything else, Chassidus teaches us that sometimes a notion we consider to be self-evident is only one of many possible ways to understand something. Even the most intellectually, intellectual individual among us may not can think to challenge certain default perspectives and values we have learned to consider axiomatic. To me, this is the most obvious with regard to the value contemporary Western culture attributes to the intellect, the empirical and the measurable, in stark contrast to Hasidus' singular value for God and then anything else connected to him by extension. Many of us st- today struggle with issues of personal worth and meaning. We feel adrift and alone. We feel connecting to others or to any kind of meaningful existence is impossible. In contrast, the picture of a chassid is a person filled with life, something sometimes elderly and with stooped gait, but always with a spring in his step, a hint of mischief in his eyes or a nigan, chassidic melody on his lips. What is it that gives the chassid this joy? this penetrating aliveness, this stubborn engagement, sometimes in spite of painfully difficult life circumstances. What has he that modern man lacks? The answer, I believe, lies in the value system of each. What does prevailing Western philosophy teach us to hallow above all else? What elements of the Western Weltanscheinung does the Chassid reject? I'll be drawing on ideas from the Hemshech of the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rasha, beginning Shvuas Tofrei Samachei, Hemshech Shvuas Samachei, to address these issues. And she goes on to do exactly that, using a whole, literally a structure of many ideas we're familiar with, but using that moment of the structure of our psyche, our conscious psyche and our superconscious psyche, intellect, emotions, and of course beyond that, the, the, the rotsen, that goes beyond intellect, and applies that to living a life that is a far healthier and far more meaningful and far more enlightened and transcendent life. Okay, that's essay number three. Then, as this year, we of course had two, spe- two we had an extra prize, $500 prize, for the best student essay. Meaning, a student could have won the first prize. However, we promised that we will definitely do a student essay, someone aged 14 to 21, that would get a $500 prize. This year, because of the quality of the essays, actually two people are getting this prize. I only announced one last time, two weeks ago. So now I'm going to announce the second one, and I'll give you a summary of those essays. The first one that I did review is um, the essay called Cognitive and Emotional Faculties by Menachem Yeshayahu, age 16, Haifa, Haifa, Israel, a student at Yeshiva's Temchet Mimim Lud. This one again is in Hebrew and posted on, online. 
and surprising, um, an excellent overview of um, keiches, which are the cognitive faculties, keiches siklim, rikshim, emotional faculties, and the three garments, as explained in Tanya. But did in a way that really helps us understand in original language the structure of our beings. Like he says, there's three different sections he has here. The structure of the nefesh of the soul in chassidus in general, the structure in specific, and how we can actually, how chassidus actually helps us transform our lives in contrast to how the psychological secular model does that. And the, and the qualities, of course, the virtues of chassidus. Very well done essay. And interestingly, things, how he explains Chachma, Bina, Das, very creative, very practical. And I, everyone reading this, even ideas you may be familiar with, you'll be quite surprised, a 16-year-old writing such an essay. So that was one student essay. The final, the final fifth top essay, which is the second student, is... It was Yakir um, Havin, age 21, Base Menachem Youth Development Center, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. This is titled Judging and Misjudging People, an Unlevel Playing Field. An excellent essay about judgmentalism, which of course is a plague of our times, maybe of all times, using Tanya. When we make assessments about the characters, or the essayist writes, of other people based on limited information, this is judgment. It doesn't always need to be a negative thing, but more often than not, it is human nature to hone in on the faults in others rather than on their finer qualities. Unfavorable judgment of others divides us and precludes us from engaging in productive and meaningful relationships. It also leaves a bitter taste in the mouth of the judge. Resenting others isn't a pleasant experience. This essay will explore some of the causes and effects of judgment and will discuss the powerful tools that Hasidus presents in an effort to curb judgmental behavior. The concepts which will facilitate this discussion are self-love, the endowment effect, and shiflus haruach, Loneliness of the spirit. Goes on to use an anecdote and use his own personal experience, which adds a tremendous dimension. So it's not just an abstract concept, how he himself literally moved from a judgmental person to less judgmentalism. There's a lot of credibility when you hear that. And again, a very vital topic. Using chassidus, direct chassidus to apply it. And, and again, credit to a student who did this. And will receive the second $500 prize for the student essay. So we've done the essays, we've done and covered this week's episode 208 of My Life is Applied. I said, as I said at the outset, as we come from Pesach, we enter, we've already entered into Sfirah Seymer, but now Sfirah Seymer continues the 49-day journey of personal refinement. Chesed Shebe Chesed, Birur Hamidus, as we say every day in the Hiratzen at the end of Sfirah Seymer. First Chesed Shebe Chesed, Gvurah Shebe Chesed, Teferah Shebe Chesed. Some of you may be familiar with the book I did on this called Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer. This year we have a completely revamped and renewed free app. Go to My Omer in the App Store, both iOS and Android. We've getting tremendous feedback of the use of it, the ease of it, and you have every day, besides reminders and blessing in five different languages, you also have the exercise and a meditation for each day. A great way to apply chsidis to refining our own beings by diagnosing, evaluating, understanding ourselves and looking where we can improve and, re- and, and refine and illuminate. Sphira from the word both Sphira counting, but it also means the narrative, to tell a story, Sipur, and Sapir, to illuminate our lives 
and tell our personal story. So please uh, check that out. You can also receive a daily email about it. But the app is, is, is probably the easiest way to go about it. And of course, the book is available as well online on our, in our store. So with this, let me conclude. Everyone should have a very illuminating, v'sfatim lachem, lachem, illuminating Svirah Sa'imer. We will be here now every week, uh, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life Citizen Supplied, episode 1208. Everyone have a very healthy and beautiful week. Thank you very much.